good morning and welcome to season three, episode four of straighttalkingenglish.com. I am your host, Catherine, and we are going to be talking about one of the most notorious figures from literature today, Mr. Edward Hyde. Dum dum dum! str Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. Remember, you can find me on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Castbox. I think that's everything I'm signed up to. Spotify. Spotify, I'm on Spotify. So, Hyde is a bit of a weird one because even though he is portrayed as pure evil, 100% evil the whole way through, he doesn't actually do anything that bad. I mean, we're not really talking Jeffrey Dahmer or Ed Gein here. Ed Gein's the guy that um, turned women into clothing, like Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Like, Hyde, he walks on someone who survives and he kills Danvers Carew and that's kind of it. But if we're going by what Jekyll says, Hyde is the most evil. My view on Hyde is he represents scary things, but things that to the Victorians are heap scary, that to us are not that scary. He does create terror, but it's not by what he does, it's by what he is. Let's tackle his appearance for a sec. So there's this very popular science, uh, science is in quote marks, you can't see my quote marks, called phrenology. It was created by a guy called Franz Joseph Gould, who was working in 1805. The shape of your skull determines your brain shape and therefore your intelligence and your personality. This guy Gould pioneered something called cranioscopy, which focused on the skull measurement of people. So he visited prison and gave the most convincing proof of of his ability to discover at first sight such malefactors, thieves, and men of particular talents as there were among the convicts and prisoners. So he goes in there with a tape measure, he measures like how far apart people's eyes are, and that convinces him that that proves you're a criminal. Problem is, phrenology itself is really, really problematic. If you want to listen to an even better podcast than mine on this, Behind the Bastards, it's the science of racism. It's frequently used to create racial racial ideas, shall we say. So by measuring the skulls of African people, you'd say, oh, their skull looks different to mine, therefore they're not as good. And you can use these stupid measurements to prove whatever nonsense theory you have. Because you can't change the shape of your skull, it is destiny. Hyde cannot ever change what he is. It is built into him. Let's have a look at this a little bit closer actually. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. The fact he is dwarfish, according to phrenologists, means he's selfish, impulsive and animalistic. Well yeah, 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 he's got that. Um, because he randomly kills someone with a stick. His voice is a murderous mixture of timidity and boldness and he spoke with a husky whispering and somewhat broken voice. Again, phrenology. In short, every individual is compelled by every word he utters to manifest something of his true character, a sign of character, as diversified as it is correct. 
act. So, like, the, f- the way he speaks is proof of his evil. His displeasing smile, as well, apparently shows he's about to attack. Like, when dogs draw back their teeth. Everything about his appearance, if you believe in this science, shows that he is evil. And there's something off about him. There's this impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. Let's talk about deformity for a second. The Victorians are obsessed with the human body. They are obsessed with it. There is nothing they like more than talking about it. And you can see it with the rise of freak shows. Like, you'd find someone who had some kind of physical abnormality. Like, I don't know, an extra thumb on one of their hands. And then you could, like, pay to see them. And, like, hang out with them. And this was entertainment. Sometimes the person would, like, do a little show or something. So the famous, quote-unquote, Siamese twins, Chang and Ung, who we now call conjoined twins, they did, like, a little juggling routine. This is the age where popularity of sideshow, of bodily difference, really, really comes to the fore. Hyde, according to this article I found online from the University of Miami, partly the reason that Hyde is so horrifying is because his hideousness is linked to disability. Despite Jekyll's judgement that nothing lived in him but evil and hatred, as I said, he doesn't really do anything bad. But physical deformity, according to the Victorians, was linked to mental deformity. Even though the characters can't quite tell what's wrong with him, he's evil, that's wrong with him, that's what's up with him, so therefore he must be deformed because if you're evil you must be default right okay and that puts him in the category of someone disabled this uh, really respected social commenter called Bo argues that for many people even now somewhere in the back of our mind we associate disability with sin evil and danger and I was thinking about this and I was like that's a little bit that's a little bit harsh but I was also thinking Blofeld in the Bond movies has got a massive scar on his face Prince Farquhar in the first Shrek ones is really really short and Jafar in Aladdin he's got a hunchback so he would have scoliosis. Richard III as well, alleged scoliosis sufferer and yeah portrayed as being some kind of hunched cruel person. So it could be this cultural trope that disability is scary. His disabled body becomes something mysterious. Victorians love putting things in categories you've got normal, you've got abnormal normal is regular regular peeps walking around to abnormal is anyone or anything that's different. He is an abnormal, therefore he's mysterious, therefore he's scary. Think about the uh, father-son language that's used as well. Hyde has more than a son's indifference. In factories and workhouses, managers often describe their employees and inmates as children and themselves as their father figures. This image talks about control, like I am a regular person, I'm the parent, I control these quote-unquote abnormal people. But Hyde isn't controlled. Hyde is out of control. He's randomly murdering people. What's scary is that he's an abnormal person. He's someone in this category of unusual physically. And he's unsupervised. He's out of control. It could be anyone. It could be like, they could be among us. It's this like body horror. The only thing I can think of to compare it is them. Um, right, right, confession time. I do feel really bad about this now as an adult. Um, but like I said in the first series, 
you are all my therapists. So I went to school down the road from uh, the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, the mental health hospital. And because I was a little kid and it was in the 90s, I had this horror of like, you know, horror movie mental patients. And in, in my mind, it was like some kind of like haunted house asylum in there. And I used to like run past the fence in case like there was some Hannibal Lecter type in there who saw me. Like, I've been in there as an adult because they have art shows every year and it's it's a fantastic facility. But there was always rumours going around the school. Like, one of the mental patients escaped and I saw her walking along and she looked at me and pointed. And like all urban legends, it's playing on like, um, like a teenage fear of something. Playing on like this fear of being an outsider, this fear of like the supernatural. But the fear I felt as a year seven, being 100% convinced that some kind of horror movie, American Horror Story Asylum type character was coming for me is the same fear that readers would have about Mr. Hyde. I accept as an adult that is pretty terrible, but it was the 90s, I was 12, I was a very overactively imagined child, and this is why education is really, really important in schools today. Thank you, mic drop, that's the end of my TED talk. Let's talk about evolution if we're talking about my personal evolution. So, from the second Louis, Lewis, our author, heard about evolution, he was hooked. He was like, this is amazing. This explains everything. Problem is, um, no one really was impressed by that. Lewis was just like, yes, evolution, and tried to convince people. In 1837, Charles Darwin arrived home after his years of voyaging around the world, observing wonders never seen before in human eyes. Trying to make sense of the differences and variations that he'd seen in his observations of species, Darwin put together a big theory. The theory that we call evolution today. When nature changes or there's a disaster, some weird members of a species survive and reproduce because they have a quality that makes them better suited for this change. Over time, the species itself will change as these individuals are the ones producing. Darwin said it best himself in the last page of Origin of Species. He said, It is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing in the bushes, various insects flitting about with worms crawling through the damp earth, and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms so different from each other and so dependent on each other in so complex a manner have all been produced by laws acting around us. These laws, taken in the largest sense, being growth with reproduction, inheritance which is almost implied by reproduction, variability from the indirect and direct action of the external conditions of life, and from use and disuse, a ratio of increase so high as to lead a struggle for life and as a consequence to natural selection, entailing divergence of character and the extinction of less improved forms. Thus, from the war of nature, famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that, whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. Lovely, lovely. Like, I have so much props for Darwin. Darwin also said, man 
still bears in his bodily frame the indelible stamp of his origin. So we've got Darwin saying there's something about our physical appearance that marks us as being descended from apes. I'm assuming it's the two hands, two feet. I'm not a zoologist here, people. And we've got a writer who is obsessed with evolution and understanding the world. Both of these men are atheists, by the way. Um, both Lewis and Charles started out as very religious, but then lost their faith as their lives went on. So we've got Hyde. Hyde is pure feeling and impulsiveness, almost like he hasn't evolved to understanding how society works. He's ape-like. It's making it very, very clear that he is not a hundred percent human. He is some kind of hybrid. What's scary is that if all humans are descended from apes, there could be a hide within all of us. Anyone could have this ancestral evil creature of feeling lurking within them and that's what makes it scary he can't be held back we can't civilize him we can't teach Hyde the way to do things because he can't understand it because he hasn't evolved to understand let's think about Hyde as a metaphor for a second if Jekyll is the respectable face of Victorian society he is repressed he is trying to be moral he is displaced playing good character, he's being a very, very good person, and Hyde is a pure impulsiveness. Is it evil to not follow society's rules? So think back to when I talked about Lewis's life. He is a libertine, he is a maverick, he never ever wants to follow someone else's rules, unless it's Percy Biss Shelley, who he's a little bit obsessed with. Total man crush. But Hyde is, if he's a sinner, if he's so primitive, then does that mean that following our desires and doing what we want to do is primitive? Does that mean that we as humans should have evolved beyond wanting to go out and have a good time? It's like the Vulcans in Star Trek. They've developed a civilization where they don't express emotion. Does that make them better than us? Because we do. This is why Hyde, I would say, is less scary, more unsettling. Lewis is playing on people's fears about what evolution might mean for them and brings up this potential that if we've all got it inside or if we, I don't know, have fun and do things that we like, are we in fact being the unevolved hide? I mean, right now I'm recording this as client counsel, so I've got a bit of spare time. Well, does that make me hide because I'm doing something I enjoy? Well, where does this lead? Am I going to start beating an old man to death with a stick? Well, no, I don't have a stick. First, I've got to go out and buy a stick. No, 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 no. Joking. I don't have time to do that today. Let's talk about doppelgangers. Because I was thinking about this when I wrote this script. Um, I saw someone who was the exact double of my sister getting on the train with me. And I was staring at this woman for ages. And she was the double of my sister. So I thought, I know, I'm going to test this. So I texted my sister and I said, are you on the train? And she was like, no, I'm at work. I was like, well, you have a double. <laughs> so if you're a Victorian spiritualist, if you're into the supernatural side of things, it is a well-known fact that if you see your double, 
it means you are going to die. For the purposes of this, even though Hyde and Jekyll look very, very different, we're going to say he's a double because they share the same body, they share the same identity, there's enough similarities for them to be seen as doubles, right? Your death will be imminent if you see your double. And because Victorian, so much science, so little time, people try to investigate these phenomena. This case study was published in a quote-unquote science book that I found online. A lady, an entire disbeliever in these spiritual phenomena, was one day walking in her own garden with her husband, who was indisposed, leaning on her arm, when seeing a man with his back towards them and a spade in his hand digging. She exclaimed, look there, who's that? Where? said her companion, and at that moment the figure leaning on the spade turned round and looked at her, sadly shaking its head and she saw it was her husband. She avoided an explanation by pretending she'd made a mistake. Three days afterwards the gentleman died, leaving her entirely converted to a belief she'd previously scoffed at. So we can say that like the very second we see Hind, it foreshadows the fact that Jekyll's gonna die. It's also a biblical thing. We're gonna come on a little bit onto this a bit more. But there is a Bible story, or at least a Victorian interpretation of a Bible story, that a doppelganger is a person's angel or a messenger sent from God. Okay, so Hind has been sent by God to do something again hitting old men with sticks so that could be a way of seeing it but he was created through science so science has become god god is science the whole bible story has been flipped around on its head he does this a lot he does lewis does these inversions of bible stories very frequently this is another nice split questions about god and science there is a really really famous doppelganger in and plug time i am about twenty-five thousand words through my book i have engaged an editor it is going to be the full history and context of jekyll and hyde with pictures and jokes and basically if you like my podcast or you really hate it and want to get a present for a friend you hate then it will be available this august on amazon there is a really famous doppelganger story in scotland from glasgow which is quite long and this was my uh my thought pattern was it is in my book but i'm not going to read it to you here i'm going to be here all day that was told this story was told to lewis as a young man by his nanny by this strange woman called Cummy, who told really inappropriate age inappropriate stories to this kid about how like if you don't brush your teeth you go into hell and i think i genuinely messed him up a little bit this was playing on his mind because a year before jekyll and hyde lewis wrote another double story a short story called markheim markheim this and this guy randomly decides to kill an antique stealer he goes into a shop and he's like i'll have one then please and then randomly kills the antique stealer goes upstairs to hide and sees his double there who talks to him and says he's like a supernatural being mark heim goes no me who can do so my life is but a travesty and slander on myself i have lived to belie my nature all men do all men are better than this disguise that grows about and stifles them you see each drag away by life like one whom bravos have seized a 
muffled in a cloak. If they had their own control, if you could see their faces, they would be altogether different. They would shine out for heroes and saints. I am worth the most. Myself is more overlaid. My excuse is known to me and God, but had I the time, I could disclose myself when explaining why he randomly killed this guy to his double. Basically, in the end, he gets so freaked out that he confesses. It, it's quite a short story, um, aside from the fact the guy has no motive. It's pretty good. You can get it on Project Gutenberg. But we've got this cultural like baggage around the doppelganger. It's foreshadowing. It's something Lewis knows about. It's something Lewis has played with before. And it comes out in Hyde. The second Hyde is there. It's a foreshadowing that this is a terrible tragedy waiting to happen. Da, da, da. Let's talk about cavemen. It's a bit more jolly. Cavemen! So, everything that we know about cavemen, about Flintstones and the Croods and any other representation that you can think of, of a caveman comes from the Victorian era. The first instance that we have of a caveman is in a French book called Paris Before Man, in which a guy decides he's going to take a holiday with a demon, and they go back to, yeah, to the site of Paris, but long before people are there, and this demon shows him everything in history. The caveman is very much recognisable about of our stereotypes now. The male let loose a guttural and ferocious roar, flashed a look at me, rose up on his hind legs, seized with his front the tomahawk of flint, and with a ferocious jump launched himself at my side while raising the terrifying weapon at my head. In that instant I gave a shout of terror because I just recognised the species of the most dangerous of all monsters. Spoiler. It was a man. Yeah, 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 it's one of these things that doesn't age well. It's, yeah, it's clear what's happening here. Hyde is troglodytic. Hyde is a caveman. He fit a lot of the description of the caveman there. We know he's underdeveloped, like he's like not fully evolved, but cavemen, that image to us is kind of funny now. You know, they're wearing a lion skin. But any Victorian representation has cave people being really, really violent, like just randomly killing each other because they're bored. A while now, we, we know that Neanderthals actually had quite a sophisticated culture. It's not the perception that people would have. They're dirty, they're disgusting, they're savage. He is absolutely brutal. Hyde is brutality. It's also something that's popular culture as well. The great dinosaur hunters are lurking. 1859, we have the first fossils of Neanderthals. 1891, the Java Man is found in Indonesia, the oldest fossils from a human at the time. And, like, this was on Twitter. Um, some was saying like oh audiences found the phrase ape like fury scary and it's like yeah but also no it's not the words it's the cultural baggage it's the idea this savage untamed animal side to any of us is lurking below the surface and there's nothing you can do about it because it's something that we as a culture feel like we've gotten away from but we haven't and it's still lurking and the bad side the bad actions we might take are as a result of this unevolved ape monkey side. Dun, dun, dun. 
I swear I could take clips of that and sell that to some of those um, American deep countryside preacher talk radio ones where I'm talking about people's bad self. But like, oh well, I could do that as a side gig. Uh, get your hype on. Get your hype on for the book. The book is going to be fab. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be reasonably priced. It is going to solve many, if not all of your problems when it comes to the context. And if people buy it, I will find the time to keep writing them, which I'm really, really hoping I can do with your support. Next week, we're going to look at the other half of the coin, which is Mr. Henry Jekyll. Boring though he is, but he's got quite a lot going on as Mr. Jekyll. A lot of things going on in his life, and we're going to talk about them. Hope you have a wonderful week. STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. Find me on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcast in. And I will see you very soon.